Welcome to The Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture with leading experts on the Bible. Hosted by Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or at thetwotestaments.com. Follow us on Twitter at the number two testaments or ask questions in our Facebook group. Welcome to The Two Testaments, a guided journey through scripture. I'm Will Kynes. And I'm Ronnie Cosman. And in this episode, we're looking at Romans 1. And we're talking to Dr. Roy Champa and Dr. Frank Thielman. Uh, Roy Champa is the S. Lewis and Ann W. Armstrong Professor of New Testament and Chair of the Department of Biblical and Religious Studies at Stanford University, where Will and I also teach. Uh, Roy is the author of a number of essays on Paul, including a commentary on 1 Corinthians and an essay on Paul's use of Habakkuk 2.4 uh, in Romans, which will be especially pertinent for our discussion today. Uh, Frank Thielman is the Presbyterian Chair of Divinity and Professor of New Testament at Beeson Divinity School here at Sanford University, and he is the author of the Romans Commentary in Zondervan's Exegetical Commentary on the New Testament series. Now, I met both Roy and Frank when I came on campus to interview, so it is my joy to flip the table and to be able to ask them the questions this go around. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so thank you both for being with us. And we want to start by asking you a more general question, which is just you both have spent a lot of time thinking about Paul, but also Romans. How did you get into thinking about Romans? What attracted you to this? Let's start with you, Frank. I think I really started thinking hard about Romans when I was in graduate school. Um, I remember being assigned uh, E.P. Sanders' Paul and Palestinian Judaism to read, and um, I really didn't understand it very well. And I realized I didn't understand the Apostle Paul's own view of the Mosaic Law terribly well. And um, that made me curious to understand it better. And so I started digging into Romans and realized there were a lot of questions here that needed answering and things that I needed to understand better. So uh, I ended up doing a dissertation on Paul's understanding of the Mosaic Law and Paul's letter to the Romans featured largely in that dissertation. It was basically on Romans and Galatians, but Romans was a large chunk of that. So that's really how I got interested in studying Romans in depth. What about you, Roy? When I was in seminary, I wrote my first major exegesis paper on, I don't remember if it was Romans, I think it was Romans 8. And I remember when I got to the end of that paper, I felt like I had talked about a lot of different things, but I wasn't sure I actually had figured it out or figured <laughs> many of the key issues out. But Paul is just so full of so many different, the teachings that are so important to us, justification, sanctification, the place of the Holy Spirit in the Christian life, um, all those different things. And then around the time when I was in seminary, there was all this interest in the new perspective on Paul, which, you know, came about from different views of Judaism in Paul's day, and then a lot more interest in Paul as an interpreter of Scripture. Um, and that in particular uh, fascinated me. Here I am trying to interpret Paul, and then to realize that Paul is interpreting the Scriptures before him, and the better I understand what Paul is, where Paul gets his stuff from, and how he's interpreting Scripture, the better I feel like I understand him. So, that's been uh, kind of a, a long part of my my study in Paul. My original doctoral dissertation was going to be on Paul's interpretation of Scripture in Romans, but that's just too much material, and it ended up switching over to Galatians, and then it ended up being just in Galatians 1 and 2. So, <laughs> that's the long way around. Great. Well, perhaps we'll begin by trying to get oriented to Paul's letter to the Romans. Um who was Paul? What was his mission? Because, you know, we should probably know a little bit about who he was and uh, what he was doing and how this letter fits into the context of who he is and what his mission was. Why don't we begin with Roy? Sure. So, Paul was uh, a Jewish leader, a very, uh, he describes himself as zealous, which in Paul's day meant someone who's willing to actually use some violence to defend God's honor or God's law. And he was 
Um, he was carrying that out in, by persecuting early believers in Jesus when he encountered Christ uh, on his way to, to bring back some more believers in Christ in chains um, as uh, part of what he thought of as his, his Jewish commission. When he encountered Christ, and Christ called him to instead bring the good news of all that was God was doing through Jesus Christ to Gentiles around the world, to, to bring that good news to the nations. Um, and so Paul has been establishing churches and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, around uh, the Mediterranean, working in a kind of counterclockwise direction across the north of the Mediterranean. Um, and he writes to the Romans uh, from Corinth uh, with his plan to go further west. He wants to get Rome, and he's hoping that this letter among in their own community, but also will serve as um, uh, a way of gaining their endorsement and their support so that they'll support him as he goes further west, all the way over to Iberia, which was his plan um, after he had gotten to Rome. That's my thumbnail sketch. Of course, we can go into a lot more details, and and, uh, and Frank may have some, some details or other things he'd like to add to that. Well, that's a really good summary of who Paul is. I think in modern terms, it might be helpful to think of Paul almost as a church planter who uh, planted churches in various large urban areas, um, probably in the hope that from those urban areas, uh, the gospel would reach into more rural areas. And I think you really kind of see a hint of that strategy in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verses 1 and 2, where Paul addresses the letter not only to the church in Corinth, but to the churches of Achaia. So, when Paul was in Corinth for 18 months, um, establishing the church there with Priscilla and Aquila, uh, evidently, churches were also being established elsewhere in more rural areas of Achaia. We know that there was one in Sincrea, just to the east of Corinth, uh, where Phoebe was an important uh, leader, but there were probably other churches as well. So Paul planted churches around uh, the Mediterranean region, uh, all through what is today Turkey, and then also uh, what is today Greece. When he wrote to the Romans, he was doing something pretty unusual because he was writing to a church that he did not plant. And uh, he wrote Colossians to a church that he didn't directly plant, but one of his co-workers, Epaphras, planted the church in Colossae. So really, Romans is the only letter uh, that we know of that Paul wrote to a church that he didn't actually establish and that one of his co-workers also didn't establish. But Paul felt that as the apostle to the Gentiles, uh, Roy mentioned his calling to be uh, an apostle to non-Jewish people groups, uh, he felt that that calling meant that he was responsible also for this large body of Christians in Rome, many of whom were Gentiles. And so, he felt some apostolic responsibility to help that church pastorally because I think he knew there was some division there. You read about that division in chapters 14 and 15. So in our conversation here, we're going to dive in particularly into chapter one of Romans. Uh, what for you is the most difficult part of understanding Romans one? What do you think, Frank? I think the hardest part of Romans 1 is understanding how Paul uses uh, righteousness language in Romans 1, 16 and 17. Um, the little phrase, the righteousness of God there, is a, a very compact phrase. Paul uses it elsewhere in Romans. He uses it more often in Romans than anywhere else. And... Um, it's a phrase that doesn't appear much in the New Testament, and so it's hard to know exactly what it means. I think in the rest of Romans, after 116 and 17, Paul uh, unpacks what he means by that phrase, but when you first see it on the page, 
And when the Roman Christians first heard it, they probably wondered, what does Paul mean by that expression, the righteousness of God? Exactly what is he talking about here? What about you, Roy? I would agree completely with what Frank just said, uh, that it is the question of the righteousness of God uh, in Romans uh, 1.16. And, and actually, I just would endorse what he said, that the readers would be wondering and looking forward to, or maybe hoping that he would unpack that more fully as the letter goes on. And Paul does do that, although he doesn't always, in my view, he doesn't always do it in exactly the same, the same way. I think he does it in such a way that you get more than one nuance out of what that might mean. And certainly at least one place, Paul makes it clear he's talking about uh, God's own moral righteousness. Um, but it also seems as though most of the time, in my view, He's talking about the righteousness that, that God confers upon or that he accredits to those who have faith. I agree completely with Frank's suggestion that that expression is probably the hardest thing in the chapter. Yeah, the righteousness of God is one of those riddles in Paul. <laughs> well, and since they both identified it as one of the most difficult aspects of this chapter, not only were the original readers, but now our listeners are wanting to see, are we going to be able to figure this out in, the next, in, the, in this episode? So we'll get to that. We'll dive, you know, hang on with bated breath because we'll get there. But let's <laughs> let's jump to the beginning of the chapter. There's another significant word that appears a number of times in chapter one, which is the word gospel. So we see it right here in the first verse. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And then it appears again uh, in verse three, the gospel concerning his son. And then in nine and 14 and 16. So, Roy, what does this term mean for Paul? That's a great and important question. Uh, I think to understand it, we need to understand some of the background, especially the, the Jewish and, again, scriptural background. Uh, passages like Isaiah 40, in which we read twice about the one who's to go up and, and proclaim good news. And in Isaiah 40, that good news is about God's return to his people and the establishment of his kingdom, the establishment of God's reign. And that theme is raised in other Old Testament texts as well in, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of, of the Old Testament. And the Greco-Roman background, the, the word for gospel was particularly applied to uh, instances of, of the announcements of the birth or the coronation of a new king. Paul clearly in the opening verses of Romans ties it into the promises that God has given about uh, David when he talks about uh, the, the gospel, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. So clearly we're to find this gospel uh, reflected in the prophets, and it's the gospel concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh. And for those who have ears to hear, there are there are echoes there of Second Samuel seven, where God promised that the son of David would be his God's son, and that he would be the father. Um, and then, so Christ's descent from David becomes important, and then that actually kind of evokes all of the promises uh, of what God would do um, through the Davidic king. And so, as we go through Romans, we find out that the gospel has to do with how through Jesus Christ, this descendant of David, this Davidic king, um, um, God is forgiving our sins. He's, he's declaring us righteous, but beyond that, he's also transforming us so that not only can we um, be declared righteous, but we can live in a new kind of obedience. And as Romans goes on, we, we read about this idea that God is actually creating a new kind of community that is transformed by the power of the Spirit. By the time we get to the end of chapter 8, Paul's talking about the whole new heavens and earth and the liberation of creation. Oftentimes, the gospel is kind of reduced to, I believe, and therefore I get to heaven. And I think it's important that for Paul, the gospel does have to do with our forgiveness of sins and how we can be made right with God. And certainly in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about how Christ died for our sins, and that is essential. But the good news uh, doesn't just uh, end there. The good news is that through Jesus Christ, God is making all things right that have been damaged through sin and through Adam. And the book of Romans is going to unpack this along the way. So I think, actually, in some ways, this goes back to what 
uh, Frank was saying about the righteousness of God, that the first time the readers read the expression righteousness of God, they'd be thinking, I wonder exactly what he means by that, and will he clarify that as we go on through the letter? And I think in the same sense, when they first read gospel, they would have an idea and know that it has to do with redemption and good news of what God is doing through Jesus. But as you work your way through the rest of the letter, you realize just how all-inclusive this good news is. It is about how I'm made right with God. It's about how God is building a new kind of community through the Spirit, and eventually how He's going to make all things right again. So, you're suggesting, Roy, that for Paul, gospel is not something that Jesus came up with, but actually it has a much deeper and older pedigree than that? Yeah, so when Jesus showed up, he they talked about him preaching the gospel, the, the good news of the kingdom of God. And so, and actually both of those themes, the good news and the kingdom of God, you can find in Isaiah 40 and other Old Testament texts. So, this is something that Jews had been waiting for, that they'd been looking forward to. And in fact, the whole idea of the Messiah was tied in with this, that, that God would send a king um, who would bring about uh, the establishment of, of God's kingdom and his righteousness and his peace, and that he'd be glorified through um, this uh, radical intervention that he would be bringing into the world. But yes, that that's all goes back before Christ. So, when Christ could talk about the good news of the kingdom, in that context, in the Jewish context, people would have some idea of what he was talking about. Frank, would you like to add anything to that? I, mean, I, I think the, 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 sorry, yeah. the reason the reason I, I asked also is because, you know, there's been a number of uh, disagreements in the last uh, year or two about what gospel means. Right. With some people wanting to place, uh, let's say, the center of the definition on justification by faith, others wanting to place uh, gospel to mean something more like uh, the kingdom of God and the arrival <laughs> of God's kingdom in Christ. Um, I mean, what do you think about that and perhaps what you yeah. see Paul doing with the language of gospel? Well, I, I really think Roy hit the right balance there. It's really a both and. Um, the gospel is about the forgiveness of our sins as individuals, but it is also about much more. And I think it's so important to go back to Isaiah 40, verses 9 to 11, to understand what the word gospel means for Paul, who, as Roy explained so well, was a deeply committed uh, Jewish person and uh, never lost his Jewishness as a Christian. So, he's thinking in Isianic terms. Let me just read that passage yeah, for, uh, for those that may not have the text just right in front of them. Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. So, that's the idea of the gospel, which means good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God, behold the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So, this is a message, a very attractive message of the coming peace that God will bring. And um, it, God's servant here is depicted as a shepherd. A uh, shepherd was a very common metaphor for the political ruler of the time. And so, I think when Isaiah spoke these words and wrote them, and those who read them originally would have understood this to mean that God is going to establish peace and righteousness and justice through his people Israel. So, the word gospel has those really kind of political, social connotations that uh, Roy mentioned. It also, uh, as Paul's going to explain, I think very clearly in Romans, has connotations of uh, bringing peace between individual sinful human beings and the God who created them. So that, uh, you know, when we get into Romans 1, 18 to 32, and we see how far astray from God's design for his creatures, human beings have 
wandered, uh, we begin to wonder, is there any hope for us? And Paul's wonderful good news is that, yes, there is. God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, has given us great hope for peace with himself, for forgiveness for our sins, and uh, for a right standing with him. So it really is both of these things. And, uh, you know, I think one of the one of the reasons Paul wanted to write this lengthy letter explaining the gospel in really systematic and careful terms to the capital of the Roman Empire was that he understood uh, this double-sided nature of the gospel, that it does have societal impacts. And you see those really clearly in Romans 12. Uh, and in Romans 13, and then for the Christian community in Romans 14 and 15. And uh, those societal impacts begin with the transformation of the individual, so that uh, each individual who is united with Christ by faith is released from bondage to sin and uh, begins to experience in a, in a preliminary way that sort of Romans 8 uh, new creation. Uh, element of life that the gospel uh, points us toward. Great. Now, I mean, this makes a nice segue because gospel appears in uh, verse 16, where Paul says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith or believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it. And here's that riddle of a phrase. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed uh, through faith for faith, as it is written, the one who is righteous shall live by faith. So, Frank, will you take a little bit of time to help us mm -hmm. unpack a little bit of this? We have a number sure. of these phrases. I mean, this, yeah. these two verses are kind of dense with all kinds of uh, very difficult things to understand. And the first thing is that you, which you both mentioned at the very beginning is the phrase, the righteousness of God. He says, the righteousness right. of God is revealed. What are the major options on the table that you think uh, are viable to understand this phrase, the righteous, righteousness of God? And how do you uh, deal with the phrase? Sure. Well, I, I think, you know, verses 16 and 17 uh, are, it, it, this is a um, part of Romans that it is important to understand in detail. So this little paragraph, it really is the thesis statement of the letter, and Paul is going to unpack it. That's why it's so dense. And the righteousness of God, then, is a very um, tightly packed phrase. Um, interpreters have usually... Um, divided up um, the various meanings of this phrase, or interpreters tend to fall into three camps, I should say. One uh, interpretation of the phrase is that it refers to the righteousness that God gives to people that don't have righteousness. Without this righteousness, we can't have a right standing before God. We can't have peace with him. And so God gives that righteousness to us. So when we speak of the righteousness of God, we're speaking of God as the giver of the gift of righteousness. So that's that's one interpretation. And Frank, that, ge that gift is uh, the gift of righteousness as a status specifically? Yes. Um, it, this is the classic Protestant understanding of the phrase that it is a status that we have before God. So God is not giving us uh, moral righteousness. He's not implanting a seed of righteousness that will grow and grow, and we will become more and more righteous as a result of that. Uh, in the Protestant understanding, he's giving us a free gift of right standing with him. Uh, the word then would have juridical force. It would refer to being acquitted in God's courtroom. We're just, uh, we're, we're in a right standing with okay. the judge, if you will. So that's one interpretation. Another interpretation is that the phrase really refers to the saving power of God. And if you uh, look at these two verses, you can see that Paul does correlate the righteousness of God 
with the power of God. In verse 16, he says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. So it seems like Paul is almost interpreting the power of God uh, by the righteousness of God and the righteousness of God by the power of God. This also, uh, this Understanding the phrase also has some anchorage back in the Old Testament, Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. So if you look at these, this passage, Psalm 98, verses 1 to 3, you can see how closely it tracks with what Paul says in Romans 1, 16 and 17. We have the salvation of God. We have the righteousness of God. Paul, uh, the psalmist refers to his righteousness in verse 2. And then the salvation of God and the righteousness of God is revealed in the sight of the nations. So we have all people groups exposed to the salvation and the righteousness of God. So a lot of interpreters would say that's the main uh, meaning of the righteousness of God in Romans 1, 16 and 17. It has to do with God's saving power made available to all the nations, to both Jews and Greeks. And uh, then there is also the view um, and this is not a common view. This is a very uh, unusual view, but it was taken in the early church, and I think it does have some merit. Uh, uh, the earliest extant commentator on Romans was the early church father, Origen. So uh, there may have been earlier commentators than Origen, but he's the earliest whose commentary we have. Um, his commentary is preserved in Latin, it's, uh, but it was written in Greek, and Origen's native language was Greek. So he was writing at about 250 AD. He spoke the language that Paul spoke. He understood Greek very well. And he interpreted the righteousness of God here basically as the equity of God, the fairness of God. And he related it to uh, he related verse 17 to verse 16, and Origen said, you know, God is fair. He is not prejudicial to the Jew, but is fair to all human beings. He's a righteous judge, and he makes salvation known uh, and uh, gives it freely to both Jew and Greek, and that's a fair, equitable thing to do. Um, and honestly, that is probably what a lot of native Greek speakers in Rome would have thought when they heard the phrase, the righteousness of God. They would probably have first thought of the fairness of God. Within a few years of the time that Paul wrote Romans, Nero um, minted a coin with the figure of righteousness on it. Um, and righteousness stands with, uh, she's a woman, and uh, she stands with uh, scales, weights in her hand, and they're very evenly balanced. And around the edge of this coin is the word dikaiosune, which is righteousness in Greek. And so when people who had, were jingling that point around in their pockets thought of righteousness, they probably thought in terms of fairness, equity, evenly balanced scales. So I think there is actually more to be said for taking that meaning into account when we think about the phrase here, especially since when Paul begins to talk about the wrath of God in 118 to 32, he labors hard to show that the wrath of God is quite reasonable. It's quite fair. Uh, God's not doing anything unreasonable when he 
expects people to worship him to whom he has given all of his creation and these wonderful blessings, it's only reasonable that people would give him thanks for his good gifts of creation. So I actually do think there's a lot to be said for that. My own view is that all three of these meanings are packed into this phrase at this point, <laughs> and that Paul actually uses the phrase, as, as Roy said earlier, he uses the phrase in a variety of ways in Romans and actually ends up using it in all three ways. So here in his thesis statement, so to speak, he's kind of setting out all of those ways and he's going to explore different aspects as the book progresses. I, I think that's, I think he's, he's setting out the phrase and uh, I think he set us up to understand it in terms of the fairness of God. Because that's, that's what an initial here would have heard. That's what an initial reader would have heard it, uh, how they would have heard it. I think he's also set us up to understand it in terms of the saving power of God. Because uh, many of the people who first heard Romans would have thought of Psalm 95. They would have probably had Psalm 95 committed to memory even if they're Gentiles, because these were Gentiles who knew their Old Testaments really well. Paul quotes from the Old Testament more often in Romans than in any other letter. So uh, I think he set us up nicely to be thinking in those terms. And then the, the real shocker comes actually in the classic Protestant understanding, which I do think Paul develops quite clearly in Romans chapter three. And I think many people would have thought, oh, uh, the God's um, God's willingness as a judge to uh, not punish us, even though we are guilty, um, is uh, does not disqualify him from being a righteous judge and a fair judge because of the death of Christ. And I think that meaning actually for the idea of the righteousness of God would have been the surprise meaning. That um, Paul then has to explain a little bit more fully and carefully and clearly in Romans three twenty one to twenty six. Now it says here that that righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. What does that mean? That is a uh, that's a a phrase that is highly controverted. And I'd, I'd be really interested to hear what Roy. Uh, has to say about that phrase. I'll just briefly say what I think, but Roy is a really good translator of the, uh, of the Greek scriptures, and I'd be interested to know his position on this. I tend to think that that phrase refers, has a distributed meaning, um, that it refers to the faith that, um, The the faith that Jewish people have, that Gentile people have, that is found in many different social groups and many different nations. The reason I say that is that this idiom of uh, from one thing to another in Greek tends to have that meaning. It tends to have the meaning of moving from one stage to another stage, or from one level to another level, or from one person to another person, or from one location to another location. So I think Paul's probably thinking about the movement, the worldwide movement, horizontally of the faith in terms of just geography, but also the the movement of the faith among social classes, which was quite a radical thing to say in a letter to the capital of the Roman Empire, which was a highly stratified society. But Roy, I'd love to hear what you have to say about from faith to faith. Um, thanks, Frank. And uh, obviously, uh, what you say has has a lot going for it. Um, I have my own uh, particular view, which is, um, well, yeah, maybe I'll unpack it this way. Uh, for me, the quotation of Habakkuk 2.4 and the second part of verse 17 is key. And the fact that it's introduced with you know, Greek is kathos or, you know, just as it is mm-hmm. written. Um, um, and then we have that snippet from Habakkuk 2.4. But the just as it is written suggests that what he's written and the first part of the verse is is founded upon or uh, supported by or justified in light of Habakkuk 2.4. 
And mm-hmm. one of the things that I find interesting is that that expression that's um, that we find usually we they translate that part of Habakkuk two four is uh, the righteous will live by faith, but the mm-hmm. by faith part there in 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 Greek we're not going to get too much into the weeds, but is ekpistos is is the Greek, it's a preposition from on the basis of or on the grounds of, and then the word for faith. That expression doesn't show up anywhere in all of Greek. Um, you can search the inscriptions, you can search Greek literature, you can search um, Greek papyri. It, it doesn't matter what kind of Greek you search. And despite the fact that the preposition, prepositions are one of the most common words, the most frequently appearing words in the Greek language. Uh, the word for faith isn't one of the most frequent words, but it's not that rare either. But that combination uh, for through faith doesn't show up in any Greek language anywhere until the Habakkuk 2.4 is translated into Greek in the Septuagint. And interestingly, even some of the Greek manuscripts we have of the Septuagint rewrite that. That is, it seems that ekpistos, the, the words that we find there for through faith, didn't seem to be the most natural way to say by faith or through faith, so that even Greek manuscripts, when they come to that, some of them write it differently, and I, I won't go through all the Greek variations. And even people who quote Habakkuk 2.4, um, according to the Septuagint with this expression, will usually end up rewording it themselves. So, Paul himself, usually when he talks about through faith, he'll use a different expression, diapistaos, or some other mm-hmm. way of saying through faith, which evidently he thought was clearer. Uh, the writer of the letter to the Hebrews does this even more. Uh, he quotes Habakkuk 2.4 in the end of uh, chapter 10 of Hebrews, and then all the way through chapter 11, he says, by faith, so-and-so did this, by faith, so-and-so did that, by faith, so-and-so did this, and all the way through 11, that by faith, by faith, by faith is clearly referring back to the by faith from Habakkuk 2.4, but it's written differently. It's not with this expression, ekpistos, that we find in the Septuagint. So, all that being said, it's interesting that in the expression in, in the first half of, chap- of verse 17, we have that expression already in this through faith to faith. And most translations don't translate it the same way. So they'll say, they'll translate it in the first part, something like from faith to faith, and then just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And you wouldn't know that the from faith or to faith is the same as the by faith. This rare, unusual expression, which usually ends up getting reworded another way, shows up twice in verse 17, once before the quotation, uh, and then after it. But that other one, the one that's usually translated to faith, you know, from faith um, to faith, um, that's pretty rare and that's harder to understand. But for me, a key of it, a key is to recognize that Paul will over and over again in this letter continue to kind of paraphrase or rewrite this little bit of Habakkuk 2.4. And he does it by taking different terms that use the same root of righteousness. You know, we mentioned the word dikaiosune, which is the word for righteousness, but then there's dikaios, the word to, for to be righteous, which is the word that we find in Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous one is ha dikaios, um, or the, the verb dikaio. So, all these have this this uh, uh, dikai root that have to do with justice or righteousness. And Paul will, will root that together or some form of that word with some other um, way of talking about faith, not always the same expression, but every time we, we read about righteousness by faith or justified by faith, um, and these expressions run all the way through Romans and into Galatians, uh, I actually consider them to be Paul's little rewritings of this part of Habakkuk 2.4, which, in other words, I also think that even though we usually translate it, the righteous will live by faith, I think Paul would break it up differently. I think Paul would take it to say, the righteous by faith will live. And Hmm. as Cranfield has argued that in the first four chapters, Paul is expounding on what it means to be righteous by faith from the first part of Habakkuk 2.4, and then and then chapters five through eight, he's expounding on what it means to live, to have that life of the mm-hmm. one who's righteous by faith. Mm-hmm. But if we go back, I don't want to take this too much longer, but that that two faith, that ace piston, mm-hmm. it's interesting because if you look at Romans 3, verses 21 and 22, many people think 
that in Romans 3.22, Paul is kind of unpacking a little bit further what he says in Romans 1.17, mm-hmm. where he says the righteousness of God, there's that expression again, the, but he's, he says that this is the righteousness of God, going back to verse 21, has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And then he clarifies, what does he mean by this righteousness of God? He says it's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now, it's interesting Mm -hmm. there because the through faith in Jesus Christ is written with one of those expressions that Paul often uses to substitute that ekpistoos, that through faith from Habakkuk 2.4. But the one that comes right after it, which seems redundant, it's through faith in Christ and for all who believe. Well, for all who believe and through faith in Christ, it sounds kind of redundant. Um, But it's a, a righteousness that comes through faith, and it seems it's for or given to all who believe, and that for all or to all who believe has that same preposition that we find that you're asking about that says from faith to faith in Romans 1.17. And then if we go back to Romans chapter 1 again, and then we look up to verse 16, where we read that um, this salvation is, uh, this, this gospel is the power of God. There's, there's the ace, it's for salvation, and then for all who believe, which is the same expression, basically, that we find in that Romans 3.22 we saw a moment ago. So, to make a long story mm-hmm. short, I think uh, the ek pistos, that from faith or through faith, is another snippet quotation of Habakkuk 2.4 just before he actually quotes Habakkuk 2.4, and that the to faith is another um, snippet kind of paraphrase of that. That's his way of saying that this righteousness from God or righteousness of God is based on faith. It's it's through faith or by faith, and that it's given to faith in response mm-hmm. to faith. It's given to everyone who believes, as he put it in verse 16, or as he'll put it again in Romans 3, 22. Um, so, what's, but, the di- what's the distinction, Roy, between from faith to faith on that reading? Well, actually, it's, it's not about a distinction. It's about, it's Paul, it's about Paul putting side by side different ways of saying it. And I think that kind of gets, for me, that's that's a pretty important part of understanding what Paul does in so much of Galatians and Romans, is that he gives us another rewording and another rewording, another rewording. You can put it this way, or you can put put it this way. You can say, diapistos, you can say, through faith, or you can say, you know, uh, or you can say, uh, ace pontus to pistuon, you know, to everyone who believes that there's various ways you can unpack this ekpistos, and partly because Remember where I started, ekpistoos was probably perceived to be a little bit uh, obscure. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, it didn't have an obvious meaning, and so Paul ends up finding multiple ways to restate it. And one way, uh, so he can just say that ekpistoos, or, or through faith, but then he can say, well, ace piston, that is, it's righteousness, which is given to faith or in response to faith, or he can say it's, it's for everyone who believes. Um, and so what he does over and over again is find new ways of stating what he thinks Habakkuk 2.4 is trying to tell us. So the difference in the, in the readings that Frank gave us and that you gave us for this phrase uh, from faith to faith, it sounds like if I'm understanding, if I'm tracking with y'all is I said, y'all and I'm yeah. not Southern. You see that? <laughs> Good job. Um, <laughs> well, Ronnie, thank you. Um, it sounds like the distinction is Frank, you have this distributive reading, right? Of from faith to faith, uh, which basically extends it from one group to another. Like from Jew and to Gentile. Does that sound right, right Frank? Right. And then, yeah. Roy, you have this reading, which is basically a restatement of the same thing. It's an emphatic restatement. Is that what you'd Clarif- say? I, clar- I call it a clarifying restatement. So people want to, what do you mean by, what, what, do, what does from faith mean? That's just a weird kind of statement. We translate mm-hmm. it by or through faith, but generally, if you say it from faith, what does that mean? Well, means it gives it in response to faith, or it gives it to everyone who believes, or it's received by everyone who believes. And so I would say that the statement is preparing the reader for these other ways in which Paul will clarify what is the relationship between believing and faith. And there are all these different expressions that Paul can use instead of 
the one from Habakkuk 2.4 that clarifies what he thinks Habakkuk 2.4 is trying to say. So, Roy, you've pointed to Paul's use of Habakkuk 2.4, not just here, but other places throughout the book, perhaps even in his other letters. But you've also said that Habakkuk 2.4 has this strange phrase that would be hard for people to understand. So why, of all the verses that Paul could kind of build his theology on, does he pick Habakkuk 2.4 and emphasize it so much? Both in Romans and in Galatians, where he quotes from Habakkuk 2.4, Paul also quotes, sooner or later, Leviticus 18.5. And in Galatians, he puts those two side by side, Leviticus 18.5 saying, uh, referring to the law, that the one who does these things will live by them. And then he puts Habakkuk 2.4 next to that saying that it's, it's the righteous by faith who will live. And so you have that will live, uh, which is, Gezer Shawah would be a Jewish technique of bringing together passages that share a similar language and kind of interpreting them in light of each other or or at least comparing them to each other. So, I think Paul has come to recognize that there is a, a way of thinking about uh, life and salvation and being right with God that bases it on one's adherence to the law of Moses, uh, and that this is uh, his understanding of the traditional Jewish understanding of what it means to be in the Mosaic Covenant, that uh, one recognizes the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to be the one true God, and one... Uh, you know, if you're a male, you're circumcised, and then you are committed to um, following that covenant. Um, and uh, and Leviticus 18.5 does a nice job of kind of summarizing that law-centered approach to one's relationship. And then Habakkuk 2.4, uh, which Paul finds in a prophet, and I think he understands this to be eschatologically oriented, that it was looking forward to the last days in which we're now living. Um, and so, this verse becomes important to recognize that in Jesus Christ, we've moved from uh, a covenant which was based on adhering to the law of Moses to a covenant which is based on having a relationship of faith with Jesus Christ. Um, and so, it, and, and then again, because of this language of being righteous by faith, he's able to uh, exploit or explore and recognize that this faith is not based on your ethnicity. It's not based on whether you're committed to the, the, um, the covenant of Moses or not, that this, this faith foundation is, is something that's available uh, and accessible to all men and women. Um, and is at the core of, I think it's the core of his understanding of, of the gospel. Yeah, that's very good. Yeah, we've spent a lot of time talking about two, uh, a couple of verses. <laughs> we spent a lot of time talking about verses uh, 16 through 17 and the righteousness of God. Um, but then Paul, as Frank mentioned, is going to expend a lot more ink, at least in the coming verses, 18 through 32, on the wrath of God. Um, Frank, why does Paul talk about the wrath of God at such length here? And let's say, when does he think God's wrath is being revealed? And why is it being revealed? Why is it reasonable that God's wrath is revealed? Well, I think the reason he moves into a lengthy description of the wrath of God here is related to uh, how Roy actually just explained uh, verse 17. So you can see in verse 18, that there's a link right back to verse 17. Verse 18, at least in my English translation, begins with a four, for the wrath of God is revealed. So that's linking this statement about the wrath of God back to what Paul has said about the revelation of the righteousness of God um, in uh, faith uh, or by God for those who have faith. And as Roy said, the uh, Habakkuk 2.4 here, I think it's best understood to refer to the one who is righteous by faith living. So Paul says, the righteous by faith shall live. I know a lot of translations render it, the righteous shall live by faith, but I think Roy is right on target. What Paul means here is that those who are righteous by faith shall live. The next time Paul uses righteousness and faith language together in Romans is in Romans 3.22. Uh, 
where the idea of living is not even mentioned. It, it's simply a discussion of how we become righteous and um, a discussion of the righteousness of God, and that happens by faith, Paul says. So I think what Paul's about to do now in verse 18 is explain why is it why it is necessary that we become righteous by faith. He's about to get into an explanation of how impossible it is for anyone to become righteous before God by doing the works of the law. And so the reason why the righteous by faith shall live is that the revelation of the wrath of God comes to all of humanity. That's what Paul's going to show in chapters one and two. And so if we are ever to live, it's got to be by faith. It cannot be by doing a sufficient amount of the law in order to be reckoned righteous by God. So I think that's the structure of the argument here. That's why he begins to talk about the wrath of God. And um, I do think he is talking about the present revelation of the wrath of God. In verse 18, that, that verb is revealed is a present tense verb in Greek, just as it is in most English translations, for the wrath of God is revealed. We could even, I think, render it with a progressive present in English, for the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of human beings who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What Paul's then going to show in the coming verses is that God, in a very equitable and just way, is um, punishing those who have failed to acknowledge him uh, and give him the praise and the thanks that he deserves for the gifts that he has given. And when and Paul views that as a very fundamental um, mistake, a very fundamental problem for human beings that they, if they can't get right the fact that God created them, and therefore God deserves thanks from his creatures for creating them and giving them the blessings of creation, if they can't get something as fundamental as that correct, then God is fully just to punish them by handing them over to the irrationality, basically, of that decision not to give him thanks. And so um, what happens in 118 to 32 is that you see God handing people over to the consequences of their irrational decision not to thank and worship him and give him praise for the good gifts that he has given to them. Um, This doesn't mean that 118 to 32 is just describing a kind of natural process of, uh, oh, well, if you fail to do X, then Y is going to be the natural consequence. God very actively is handing us over (laughs) to our irrationality. So it's not, it's not taking God out of the picture of, of, uh, of dealing out wrath to human beings in a kind of deistic way or mechanistic way. He's still active in doing that. But Paul is laboring hard to show that by handing us over to this irrational sin of failing to give God thanks, God is only doing what is just. And um, so I think, you know, once again, he is showing God to be righteous. And so 118 to 32, in a way, is displaying the righteousness of God. So thank you so much, Frank, for guiding us through the logic of these passages. Let's look at this passage. Let's look at a couple of the rhetorical techniques that Paul uses to convey that. Uh, We'll look more generally at his use of the third person plural here, and then we'll look specifically at one 
23. Uh, so the third person plural we see right here in, at the beginning of 418, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. Uh, and then at the end of verse 19, because God has shown it to them. Uh, verse 21, for though they knew God, they knew God, they did not honor him, and so forth. We see this kind of language over and over again. So, Roy, what's going on there? Why does Paul switch to this third person plural, and what rhetorical function does that have? Well, I think he's he's asking the readers to to kind of follow the train of thought and fill in the blank of who are these people. But if if you're paying attention, I, I think Frank did a great job of outlining kind of who the, the people he's talking about are people who have rejected God, who failed to recognize him as creator, to give thanks to him. So when he says that they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man or birds or animals or reptiles, you know, much of this reflects the kind of language and, and divisions that we find already in the creation and Genesis one, you know, we don't have fish mentioned here, but in Genesis one, we have how God created, you know, uh, the, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, and then all the creatures on the ground. And then God created um, humanity in his image. And so both the language of um, image and glory uh, can go back to Genesis 1 as God creates humanity and his image, and we get this idea of, of the glory of God there as well, but also that human beings uh, were created to have dominion over the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and all the creatures on the ground, and yet what humanity turned to was idolatry and said instead of worshiping God, and having dominion over these creatures that should be under human dominion, humanity handed dominion over um, to these creatures and decided to worship the creatures instead of God. And, and that ends up putting God at, in the bottom or out of the pecking order altogether. It, it takes God out of the equation and instead of honoring him, honors instead these lesser creatures, animals, creatures, or even other human beings. So, in one sense, I think it goes back to talk about what humanity has been doing. But on the other hand, he's really talking about Gentiles, and in part, because we know, part of this is the background that we know in Judaism in Paul's day, Gentiles were especially known by Jews for two uh, vices in particular, and they were known to be idolaters and sexually immoral. And these are some of the first two major things. Paul talks about the idolatry um, and then how that idolatry um, results in sexual immorality. And then from there, he goes into his long list of vices as well. So, talking about how once we turn away from God, that leads to not only a break in our relationship with God, but a break in human relations and at the basic uh, sexual and other level, but then all the way down the breaks in, in the rest of kind of civilization in terms of, you know, murder, strife, deceit, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, really everything that's wrong in this world. Um, but he starts off with those vices that I think anyone in the context who is aware of early Jewish and early Christian rhetoric would know He's talking about uh, Gentiles in particular because they were known for these vices. And then in chapter two, I think he's going to be clear, and you'll have another interview with somebody else about chapter two. But <laughs> there, I think he turns he turns his guns to talk about how how Jews also are guilty. Um, but here he's lowering the hammer and basically saying, um, in one sense, everything we find wrong in humanity or in culture or in this world. Um, ultimately is attributed to turning away from God uh, and the failure to respect God. When you get to chapter three, you'll have Paul quoting that whole katina, that whole list of, of psalms and other texts of complaints about how there's no one righteous and everyone is evil and, and, and people are, are sitting with their mouths, with their lips, their hands and their feet, they're running after evil. Well, you could trace that back here to chapter one in the list of vices that Paul uses, mm. uh, because here in chapter one, he's already saying that all these destructive things are, are unleashed into the world because people reject God. Um, and then uh, the whole series of vices and uh, problems result from that. So I would say humanity as a whole, but then Gentiles in particular who are identified with these behaviors from which Jews uh, and early Christians 
um, had turned away once they had come to faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. It's, you know, a lot of people, uh, like you mentioned, Roy, a lot of scholars, they see in Romans 1, um, Paul basically taking on a kind of Jewish anti-Gentile uh, polemic against idolatry, um, which I think is right. But the uh, one thing I think that's interesting, not only an anti-Gentile polemic against idolatry, is it seems to me that in verse, uh, in chapter 1, verse Uh, 23, when he says they exchange the glory of the immortal God. I mean, you, you referred to Genesis. I think one of the Old Testament passages that I think is almost verbatim quoted, at least half of it, is Psalm 106, hmm. uh, verse 20, where we read they exchange the glory of God. And then he, but Psalm 106 goes on to say, for the image of an ox, which reminds us, I think, of the golden calf. Yeah. So his move, you know, in um, implicating Gentiles in idolatry is to include them in Israel's kind of primal <laughs> sin of idolatry. That's uh, right. But of course, he's going to substitute the ox with uh, some of the animals that we see in Genesis, which I think is really interesting. That's right. So, and he's going to lower the bar harder on the Jewish community. Uh, in, in the next passage, but but it's, it's for those who want to trace it back, they'd already realized that there's an indictment already hidden there. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you both yeah. for guiding us through some of the difficult issues in this chapter and helping us to see how it all fits together and, and really setting a strong foundation for the rest of our journey through Romans here, raising a number of issues that we'll come back to over and over again, uh, such as the, the nature of the righteousness of God and the, the relationship between Jews and Gentiles as they're presented here in Romans. We just have one more question for you to finish up here. One of the things that we like uh, to do with our guests is ask them to participate in that genre that biblical scholars know well, which is the blurb. Um, you know, what we get on the back of these books, uh, the effusive praise for some book that you have, we hope, read all the way through. Uh, so um, <laughs> we'd love to hear a blurb from each of you, and it doesn't have to be for a book. It could be for anything that you've recently discovered that you enjoy and you think others may enjoy as well. So why don't we start with you, Frank? Do you have something you'd like to blurb I, I would be happy to blurb my friend Dan Block's new covenant uh, book on the covenants. It's called Covenant, the Framework of God's Grand Plan of Redemption. This is really an excellent book. It's a biblical theological survey of the idea of covenant from Old Testament right on into the New Testament, and it's filled with a lot of uh, Dan's wisdom uh, gleans over many years of teaching and studying the scriptures. And uh, it's a wonderful book. It's coming out with Baker Bookhouse, and uh, hope you'll get a copy of it. And uh, it, just on the lighter side, um, I was really searching this summer for something to read that was not troubling, you know, it wasn't sort of the daily headlines about how bad COVID was getting. And I decided to go back to the 19th century and to my, also to my childhood, I'm not quite that old, but, um, <laughs> and reread Treasure Island. And uh -huh. I have just really enjoyed reading uh, Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island again. It's just a great story. So, let me commend that to you for a little bit lighter reading if you're looking for something to just get your mind off off the state of uh, COVID right now. All right. Thank you for that, Frank. What about you, Roy? Well, I wasn't quite sure if you meant we're supposed to blurb something related to Romans or not. So I have a couple <laughs> of things I'd like to blurb. One is uh, this excellent commentary on Romans by a certain Frank, uh, I think that's pronounced Thielman, uh, who's actually a very well-known New Testament scholar. It's your one-stop shop for all of the, the exegetical questions that you have about Romans uh, right here. And then beyond that, um, uh, I really would like to highly recommend this book by uh, Esau Macaulay. Uh, you might think it's not written yes. for me, uh, but Reading While Black, uh, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. Um, 
I've never lived life uh, as as a black person, but reading this book uh, helps gave me new perspectives and new insights into text. Something that um, you know uh, a, a fine black New Testament scholar like Esau Macaulay and would notice that that would somehow just have slipped by me. And you say, how did how did I miss this? How did I not see that? And actually, uh, just a, a a very wonderful uh, description of a kind of an ecclesial reading tradition. Uh, that is committed to uh, orthodoxy and committed to orthopraxy and to uh, uh, a reading where the the gospel actually does uh, promote uh, justice in the world in these uh, very critical uh, ways today. So, Esau Macaulay's Reading Well Black, I think it ought to be on everyone's uh, uh, must-read list. Well, thanks to you both for joining us. It was really great to have you guide us through, you know, Romans chapter one. And thanks to our listener, of course, listener, hopefully more than one. <laughs> listeners. What's our um, listener's name? Is it Harry? Or, no, sorry. <laughs> yeah, thanks to our listeners for tuning in. And, uh, you know, if you'd like to keep up to date with the latest episodes, you can go to our website, which is the two testaments.com where you can subscribe. You can also visit us uh, on Facebook. We have a, both a Facebook group and page where you can join the conversation and you can ask questions, which hopefully. Yeah, if we there's can something take, in uh, Romans 1 that we <laughs> didn't address, then ask yeah. your question there. And, uh, uh, and we also have a Twitter, uh, Twitter account, and you can follow us there and like and retweet whatever you see. So please share this with your friends, with your family. Um, with your dog if you'd like but that wouldn't really help and uh, if you'd like to maybe deliver us from the wrath of uh, oblivion in social media and not being listened to you could like and share this and it would be your righteousness to us thank you the two testaments is produced with the support of Sanford University where Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes are professors in the Department of Biblical and Religious Studies Thanks to Joe Zellner, Jody McFarlane, and the team in the Faculty Success Center, and our student assistants, Carson Knopf, Jake Maddox, Harrison Pike, and Gracie Plum, for their help with production, editing, and promotion.